Father God, we want what we just sang to be more than words in a song, but to be reality in our lives. And we pour out our praise, we pour out our hearts, and then our conscience sings, great are you, Lord. Indeed, you are great, and we are thankful that you did not just create us to leave us to our own ends, but you created us for a relationship. We thank you for your inspired word and what we can learn from and be challenged by it. And we pray, Lord, that you would again take a familiar parable and rightly apply it to us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. There was a small company CEO. It happened to be the weekend, but his computer was not running well, and so he called up one of his employees at home, hoping that that employee could help him out just a little bit. And so in the course of dialing up the phone, he waited for the man to answer, but instead... He was surprised by a little child. Hello? The CEO said, is your dad there? The little boy said, yes. May I talk to him? No. Is your mother there? Yes. May I talk to her? No. Realizing that the young boy is probably not being left alone, the CEO who needs to talk to somebody a little older than this little tad said, well, is there any other adult there? Yes. The policeman. Oh, said the CEO. Now he's starting to get a bit concerned. And he said, well, can I talk to the policeman? (laughs) No. The little boy said, not at all. So the CEO asks, why not? He said, because mommy and daddy and the policemen are talking to the firemen. (laughs) You can imagine now the CEO is quite concerned. And then he hears what, what sounds like a helicopter in the background. And so he asks the young boy, what is in the background? A helicopter. Why is a helicopter in the background? What's going on there? That's how the search team got here. You can imagine that the CEO is quite concerned. We have a policeman, a fireman, a search team, a helicopter. We've got the whole thing going on. And so, of course, the CEO asked the final important question, why are they there? And the little boy giggles and says, they're looking for me. (laughs) Now we can suspect, rightly so, that this little guy is having a great time. But that great time is going to soon come to an end. And there will be an accounting, a reckoning of his actions. That's precisely what happens in the parallel of the prodigal son. Here we have a young man, we've supposed he's somewhere between 13 and 14 years old because he's Jewish and not yet married. 
He comes to his father and he says to his father, I would like my inheritance now. And based on Deuteronomy 21.17 with two sons, we know essentially he is asking for one-third of the family estate. And by making such a request, he's essentially saying, you are dead to me now, dad. I just want to move on in life. And we would expect the father to rebuke the son, but instead the father gives the son the request of the son. He gathers all that he has a few days later, which means he sells his possessions and he heads off to a far-off land. He goes into, according to verse 13, reckless living, wild living. And soon he spends a third of the family fortune, all that he has. A famine strikes the land, and at that moment, he needs a job. And as a Jew, the only job he can find is with a pig farmer. And he looks at the pods that he's feeding the pigs, and he says, Man, how many servants on my father's estate have bread to spare? And yet I have nothing. I will go back. I will not ask to be a son. I will say, I have sinned against you, God. I have sinned against you, my father. I am not worthy to be called your son. Make me as a hired servant. And you remember the father said, quick, to another servant. Kill the fattened calf. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and a robe around him. This son that was dead is now alive. The son that was lost has now been found. We shall celebrate. And that's the theme of Luke 15. A lamb is lost and is found, and they celebrate. A coin is lost, and is found, and they celebrate. A son is lost, and he is found, and they celebrate. Let's pick up in the text. I want to read the entire account to us, starting in verse 11, all the way to 32. And he, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had. He took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise, I will go to my father, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me, as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And now the part of the passage 
that is very rarely taught. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. Sibling rivalry can run rather deep. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I would wonder how many of you are the oldest child in your family? If you're the oldest child in your family and there are other children, I'm willing to bet at one point or another you said, it's not fair. When I was her age, when I was his age, you would never let me get away with that. The youngest is spoiled. Now, full disclosure, I'm the youngest. <laughs> My wife is the youngest. Our youngest is the youngest. We have three youngest in our immediate family. The smartest three in the family. No, no, I didn't say that. I know how this goes. If you're an oldest child, I've got to tell you a little secret. You're a lab rat. You're a guinea pig. You were the test case. You were the experiment. Mom and dad never meant for you to endure all that you endured. But they were learning. There's parental maturation going on. And so what happens is we tend to lighten up and understand what is a major and what is a minor as time goes on. And so it's not that we let the little child get away with everything. It's that some of the things that we thought were big deals, we've learned are not big deals. And we made them big deals in your life, not out of a lack of love, but out of a lack of experience. More likely than not, if you're the oldest, we prayed more for you and how to raise you. We read more books on how to raise you. We got more advice on how to raise you because we were terrified in trying to raise you. But as time goes on, we got pretty good at this. In our house, we have four children, and when Hannah finally left, the youngest, Betty Ann and I finally had this thing down. We're now actually pretty good at this parenting thing, and they're all outside the nest. We can hardly wait for grandchildren, and I know what I'm going to say to my kids, lighten up. We're going to say that lots of times because I can already see what's going to happen. They're going to 
out of a desire to raise the perfect child, they're going to be perhaps a little bit too tight. Now, the father in our text represents God the Father. He doesn't need parental maturation. But the oldest son is acting like an oldest son often does. And he's acting like, you know what? I had it rough. I've worked for you all these years. You never even gave me a goat. But when this son of yours, who has squandered the family fortune with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf. There's a little bit of sibling rivalry that's coming through the text. Indeed, the eldest son makes an incredible claim in verse 29. He says, all these years I have worked for you. I have never disobeyed you. And I thought outside of Jesus Christ, I was the only perfect son. It's unbelievable. This son, all these years, has worked for dad and never disobeyed dad, not once. Yet this is the exaggeration of of a son And then he goes on to exaggerate that my younger brother devoured, devoured your property with prostitutes. Sibling rivalry. When you and I begin in verse 25, we show up at the point in which the oldest son has been working in the fields. It's been a long day, a hot day, a hard day. There's lots of other workers. Perhaps he's a supervisor. Perhaps he's a hands-on supervisor. Regardless, he's been in the fields and, and he's exhausted. And as he heads back to the house, perhaps for a shower, he hears the sounds of celebratory music, dancing music. It's wafting in the air. He hears it and he wonders, did I miss something on my social calendar? I don't recall a celebration. And he gets close and he realizes the celebration is coming from his own house. And he calls forth for one of the other employees. He said, hey man, what's going on? And although verse 27 is all we got, we can kind of surmise the conversation. Undoubtedly, the servant said something like this. Your brother was lost and now he's found. He was dead to your dad and now he's alive. You should have seen him. He looked very worn down. He's aged quite a bit. He smells like pigs. But he's home. And we're celebrating. God rocked this one. Go change into your party clothes. Come celebrate with us. And you remember the response of the oldest son. He's not changing and he's not going in. As the oldest son, he has responsibilities. In his culture, in his age, he was essentially the second host. He would be the host along with his dad. He would make sure all the guests had everything they need. He would mingle. He would go from table to table. He would make sure that the party was a success. But he won't do it. And by not going in, he's shaming his dad. He's humiliating his dad. He's making it clear that his dad is wrong. Now the text is all about celebration. We leave the 99 and we go after the one and we celebrate. 
We have nine coins and lose one and we find it and we celebrate. The son who was lost has been found, who was dead is alive and we celebrate. And yet the oldest son doesn't celebrate. He's annoyed. He's enraged. We see in the text, he's angry. Verse 28, it's much more than just annoyed. He's going postal. He's angry. He wants revenge. He wants to give this good-for-nothing son a piece of his mind. He wants to give his dad a piece of his mind. How dare the son come back? How dare this son who has taken a third of the family estate, a third of mom and dad's social security, a third of what's to be passed on to the next generation and the generation after that, and he squandered it. How dare he come back? And how dare dad ever invite the prodigal back as though a child has the right to ever dictate the rules in the home. As if a child has the right to say when a prodigal comes home or when a prodigal doesn't come home, how dare this oldest son act this way. So what does the elder son do? He refuses to go to the party. Now we would expect the following to take place. We would expect that the dad would come out, that the dad would be stern, that the dad would give a lecture, that the dad would set things straight, that the dad would say, in this house, you will obey our rules, and I and your mother have the right to decide if the son comes home. You do not. That would be a reasonable response in the 21st century, and certainly in the first century. But instead, the dad entreats the son. He says, all that I have is yours. And this son who was lost is found and was dead is alive. And come in and celebrate. But you remember what the son says. The son says, I have worked for you all these years and you have not even given me a goat. And I've obeyed you all of these years. I've never disobeyed you. It's an incredible claim. I've never been immoral. I've never been drunk. I've always got straight A's. I don't have a secret tattoo on my back because you told me I can't have the tat until I leave home. I have never talked back to you. And I floss two times daily to boot. I am the son that you've dreamed about having. And when this other son comes home, you kill the fattened calf. The text drips of self-righteousness, self-entitlement. We have this son who says, you've never even given me a goat. What kind of father are you? Now in the Western world, Sometimes we side with the son. But understand in the Eastern culture, they never would. Biblically speaking, we never should. What does this son deserve? Dad has provided a roof over his head. Mom and dad have provided food and 
clothing. He's been given a job. He's been cared for. He's been loved. Why does he deserve a goat? You see, the problem in the Western world is that we really don't understand grace. That's the problem. You see, we talk about grace as being unmerited, undeserved. But that's not really what we often think. I look out and I see some amazing people. I don't know what I'm going to say at 1030. But at 8 o'clock, I look out and I see some amazing people. And I say, you know what? You guys have probably been like 85, 90% good. So God needed to fill in the last 10 or 15% for grace. And then I look in the mirror and I say, all right, maybe 21% is all I got. God's got to give me 79%. But both of those are equal lies. God needs to provide 100%. Grace is what we don't deserve. This young man doesn't understand grace. He has a sense of entitlement. He's been provided for. He's been cared for. He's been loved. And yet he thinks he earns more than that. He deserves more than that because he looks around and sees somebody having something more than he has and immediately when he was satisfied with the status quo, he's now unsatisfied because somebody has better, somebody has bigger, somebody has more and he's forgotten grace. And somehow he has the right to be angry at the dad who extends something extra to someone else. And if dad extends something extra to someone else, dad needs to extend it to me as well. And I've forgotten grace. Because grace means that anything I get, everything I get, is unmerited and undeserved. It's a sense of entitlement. I think there's something else going on with the oldest son. I think he projects his own sin onto his brother. He says, this son of yours who squandered your property on prostitutes. And I want to ask how he knows it. He didn't even know his brother was home. He hasn't had time to catch up with his brother. Verse 13 says that the younger brother took all that he had and went to a foreign land. It's highly unlikely that precise news from a foreign land has come back about his brother squandering the family fortune on prostitutes. It's possible, but very unlikely. I think what's more likely is that the older brother is a secret voyeur. That he's projecting what he would do if he had the money and had traveled off to a foreign land and nobody was going to know what he had done. And so he projected his likely sin onto someone else. And we do that. We tend to be more tough, more unkind, less charitable, less gracious when we see our own sins in the life of someone else. 
and we tend to come down very hard on them. And I think that's probably what's happening in the life of this older gentleman. And through it all, the Father, who is God, is gracious, is kind, and forgiving. He's kind to his younger son, who squandered the family fortune on reckless living. He's kind to the older son, and he reminds him, all that I have is yours. He's kind in the midst of their sin. I want to be like the Father. So what do we do with the text? Let me offer a few thoughts. First, I don't want us to ever think that there aren't repercussions for sin, whether it be the younger or the older. I think of the younger, there are great repercussions for his sin. First, he squandered all that he had, and he suddenly discovered that when all was spent, the friends he had were gone. He was hungry, a famine struck, and he finds himself working hard, longing to eat the slop that he's feeding the pigs. And he needs to come back, and he needs to humble himself. And though he was dead, now he's alive. Though he was lost, now he's found. There's still some repercussions. Sin is like that. It has repercussions even after we come to Christ. There will be no future inheritance for him. All that dad has will go to the son. Actions have consequences. Our actions never determine destiny. Our destiny is determined based on what we do with Jesus Christ. Whether by faith we believe in his death as a payment of our sin, his resurrection as the first fruits of salvation, or whether we reject that. But our actions don't play a part in that. It's a matter of faith or denial of Christ. But having received Christ, even actions matter going forth. Our actions matter in terms of what we do with the time and the talents and the treasures, whether we are engaged in going and growing and connecting, connect, grow, go whether we are taking the next step in our relationship with Christ and the step after that and the step after that. God is quite aware of how we are spending our lives and what we do and what we don't do and what we say and what we don't say and how we live or how we refuse to live build up extra eternal rewards that God will give the faithful when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. The foundation is Christ. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, the day of judgment, will disclose it. 
because it will be revealed with fire. Fire burns off, smelts off the impurity of gold, silver, precious stones, but it destroys wood, hay, and stubble completely. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as only through faith. Works do matter. And how we live prior to Christ can have repercussions post-Christ. And how we live post-Christ can have implications for the rewards that we receive or we forfeit in eternity. Works never determine destiny, but they can determine God's good pleasure and God's grace now and later in terms of rewards. The second thing I see in the text is that God is quite capable of forgiving big sins as if there are small ones. God's quite capable of forgiving any sin. I mean, we have the the young boy who goes off, verse 13, for reckless living. We have the older son who claims to be sinless. Let's name some of his sins. He's filled with pride. He dishonors his parents. He's a slanderer. He's probably a secret voyeur. He's holier than thou. He has a sense of entitlement. He doesn't understand grace. He's not filled with grace. He's not filled with mercy. And we could go on. And God forgives. The Father forgives. And so I don't know what we've come with today. I don't know what baggage we brought into the room, what baggage that is in our lives. But God can forgive. And God longs to forgive if we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He longs to celebrate. The chapter is about celebrating. He longs to celebrate the next step in our relationship. With Jesus Christ, he he longs to celebrate as we connect and we grow and we go. He longs to celebrate as he forgives when we confess. The third thing I see in the text is the temptation to be just like the oldest son. It kind of goes like this. I see somebody, a professing Christ follower... And they're not overcoming a certain sin in their life. And they're doing it over and over again. And they seem to be prospering. And I think, come on, God. Zap them. Take them out. You're a little soft on sin, God. Now, I kind of like it when he's soft on sin in my life. But I don't like it when he's soft on sin in someone else's life. But the truth is he's never soft on sin. Ever. Sin destroys, sin kills. And his justice and his holiness and his wrath demand that sin be paid for. And so he poured out his justice, his holiness, and his wrath on his son who went to the cross. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. And he took it all, that if by faith we would believe in him and receive him, 
we would be given eternal life. God's not soft on sin, but He's gracious towards sinners. And I want to be like the Father who learns to be gracious towards sinners. Not to be like the oldest son who projects his own sins on someone else and then is particularly unkind to them. We want to be like the Father. Finally, we want to notice that there's an importance in showing kindness and grace one to another, recognizing that if someone knew what was in our life, we would be ashamed. I could go through life like this. I've never been divorced. So those of you who have been divorced, I'd like you to hang your head when I'm around, please. And those of you who struggle with alcohol, I don't even drink. You should hang your head when you're around me. And those of you who struggle with murder, maybe you've murdered somebody. I've never done that. You probably should be in another room for me. But the truth is, I've done lots of things, said lots of things, thought lots of things that you haven't. I could have picked six other categories that you're innocent of and I'm guilty of. And while never being soft on sin, I want to learn to be gracious towards sinners. And I want to remember Hebrews 10.24, that we are to spur one another on in love and good deeds. I want to remember Galatians 6, 1 and 2, that ye who are spiritual, looking to yourself first, should confront one another in a spirit of gentleness with the goal being restoration. We don't want to be like the oldest son. Some Christians are, some churches are. They shoot their wounded, and when they hear a confession, they're always thinking to themselves, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And yet the father, the father goes out and says to the son who's willful, all that I have, I give to you. And he says to the youngest son who has squandered a third of the family estate, kill the fattened calf, put a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, a coat around his shoulders, covers him with kisses and said he was dead and now he's alive, he was lost and now he's found. That's the graciousness of a God who's not soft on sin but gracious towards sinners and that's what he calls you, me, us to be. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for chapter 15 of Luke that reminds me to celebrate when people come to Christ, to celebrate when sinners turn from their sin, including myself, to celebrate when people make the next step in their relationship to you. Help us to learn to celebrate, never to be soft on sin, but to be gracious towards sinners. Help us to find that 
so difficult but so necessary line in our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.